Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Review. Can you believe it? We are back and ready for another season yet again. And the first full week of school is complete. And with that, I'm John Brown. I'm Gideon Karaoke. I'm Ethan Pellin. Alejandro de la Sandra. And I'm Haley Smilo. Nice to see everyone tonight. I hope everyone had a great first week back at school. Um, any thoughts before we get started? It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a good show. It's gonna be a really good show. Yeah, it is. Hands down, I agree. Okay, so let's get started. Story one, which is my story. Um, last week Sunday, there was a shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is about thirty minutes from my hometown, just outside of Chicago, Illinois. And the town I live in borders um, Kenosha. I'm sorry, the town I live in like borders southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois. And I'm very close to um, southern Wisconsin where Kenosha is located. Um, in fact, I have an aunt and an uncle who live in Kenosha. And um, if you are not aware, um, Jacob Blake was shot by Kenosha police and he is now paralyzed uh, because of it. To me, um, Kenosha, I'm just going to say this like straightforward, Kenosha and Milwaukee, which is the biggest city to Kenosha, um, are very segregated. It's really, really segregated. Um, I would probably have to say it's probably one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Um, and just seeing Kenosha police's track record, um, it sounds awful to say this, but it was only a matter of time before this happened before it would make the news. Because obviously if you didn't live in Kenosha or if you're not familiar with the Kenosha Police Department and every police department has its faults, obviously, just with its own problems in handling. um, It's just, it was unfortunately, I think it was just, it was just a matter of time before Kenosha Police would do something just as awful as this was because obviously as going on saying, if you aren't familiar with the police department and their track record, you you wouldn't know. I feel like it's like, oh, you have to be local to like see it and everything. And to my point, there has been a lot of problems like in Kenosha with the police before this. It just hasn't like made the news, like national news, like the Jacob Blake shooting did. And I definitely think it's sad that it has taken this long for the police to be exposed as they are now I definitely think this should have come a lot sooner because Kenosha is not in the news a lot they are in the news for President Trump visiting the Foxconn which is like a big business in the uh, Milwaukee like suburban area I just personally think it's just I just wish that more light would come to the Kenosha area and to all other areas in the United States too that things are happening before just like explodes into like national news and my second point is the shooter kyle rittenhouse the 17 year old 30 minutes um across the border from illinois came in with an assault style weapon and was shooting at protesters in wisconsin and wisconsin has a law that you can um that you can have weapons that you can um carry but you have to be 18 and over but in illinois it is illegal and he brought his weapon into Wisconsin across borders and just fired and was part of like a militia styled group. Um, he was also part of the, um, 
I'm sorry, he was part of the Explorer group in Illinois and a town from five minutes, a town like a neighboring town of his, uh, one of the heads of the Explorer program there committed suicide in 2015. Um, and he tried to like, so basically this cop, this head cop of like the Explorer program, this one morning, my freshman year of high school, he was responding to um, a call apparently. He said two black men and a white man held him, like they met him like in a corner and like a deserted area in town. And they basically had guns to him and they were shooting him and everything. So there's like this big national manhunt going on for like nearly a week, like maybe less than a week. And it turns out that he committed suicide in that he tried to pin this on two, like three imaginary people were not even there at all, but yet it was his himself. It turns out he was um, embezzling money. He threatened a, a city clerk for the town the night before. He fell asleep at his wheel um, often. Um, it's just interesting to see all this that it's five minutes away from like the town that this happened in. But it's just, I personally live 10 minutes away from where the 17 year old shooter was like where he's from. And it's just all interesting to see how this is all playing out now. Because like I said before, Kenosha doesn't really make national news or local news. Um, like in North, neither the town Antioch, Illinois doesn't make news at all. And I think it's just, I think it's like, and it's disheartening how it's just like now, like we're bringing like light to this and everything. But I think there's also a certain due point where change actually needs to be made and we need to like we need more reform and for what everyone is like advocating for so i'm opening up to you guys um to what you think and correct me if i'm wrong on anything too please off of what john was saying it's also very important to read and pay attention to your local news because mm -hmm. you need to know what's happening in your area whether it makes it onto national news or not but yes it is sad that most areas of our country aren't covered by national news and that national news is consumed by these major stories and when they're not it you know it's new york la chicago these big cities we need to realize that america is a lot more than the major cities that are just in america yeah and i just want to talk about one of the points john um brought up about milwaukee and I don't know too much about Kenosha. I will just preface this, but he brought up Milwaukee being dubbed one of the most segregated cities in America. While unlike John, I've never been to Milwaukee. I've actually have read articles like showing like even with visuals, just how insanely segregated Milwaukee is. And if Kenosha is even anything like that, then I really hate to come out and say it. It's, it was only a matter of time. And also the police chief there hasn't exactly been reconciliatory to say the least. Um, I don't remember the exact words he said, so I'm not gonna try to quote him, but essentially he said something to the effect the other day of, you know, the protesters wouldn't have got shot if they didn't break curfew. And it's like, excuse me? It, like. I'm gonna come out and say it, like, excuse me? What, you, like, you're just, like, you are literally justifying 
a killing here. Someone died. Like, it's, it's, no, I, I agree. I think I have the quote of what you're talking about. Let me, um, let me find it. Um, just before John speaks, I think it's, an, it's important to know, um, you know, I'm not familiar with like Gideon, I'm not familiar with Kenosha and I'm not really familiar with Kenosha police. Um, but uh, I think, you know, the way we're talking about, um, you know, these smaller towns and local news, I think it's important um, that we really pay, pay attention to these um, smaller towns because they often get less coverage. And I think um, not just less coverage, but they often get ignored by the people who have power, like in those states, like in Wisconsin or just anywhere. Um, and I think it's, we need to, you know, make sure that we're look. I mean, obviously, you know, people are naturally can pay more attention to the bigger cities, but I think you do a real disservice and it does a lot of harm to the smaller towns and the communities in those, um, the people that live in those communities. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say that. Well, and, uh, speaking of people that have, uh, power <laughs> in these cities, the, uh, these are comments that were made by uh, the, Kenosha, the current Kenosha Sheriff back in 2018, in which this was in response to um, a, a string of shoplifting, shoplifters. He said that the garbage people that fill our communities need to be warehoused in inhumane conditions until they've perished in these buildings. You have to wash your hands of these people. There's some people that aren't worth saving. So just, just to illustrate sort of how the sheriff in charge of Kenosha's police department thinks of the population in which he's in charge of protecting. And yeah. here's a quote. Sorry, Gideon, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. Um, <clears throat> just wanted to say, um, there's a lot to be said uh, about the incredibly, just horribly toxic law enforcement culture in this country. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I guess I could do an entire episode on it, and I have long thought about doing one eventually because I have a lot to say on this. But yeah, let's just say the long and short of my argument um, is uh, I'm not a huge fan of the, like, the thin blue line rhetoric because I think it's logical conclusion of these are the only, like, there are citizens and then there are criminals only leads to stuff like what Ethan was saying where, okay, so we should just warehouse the criminals because they're not us. And it's like, uh, not a good idea. So yeah, not a fan of like thin blue line rhetoric and such, very anti us versus them stuff, not good. And I, I, if we're going to have this thing called law enforcement, which I think the vast majority of the population agrees with, of course people don't. And that's, we talked a little about police abolition at the end of last season, but and, but the vast majority of people do, and it's the culture around it is incredibly toxic, as you were saying, as your whole quote proved even. Yeah. And to bring in um, this, to, because there's actually a connection now between um, a student organization here on campus and these, uh, this event that occurred, which is our, um, 
local college Republicans, United chapter, uh, decided that they are going to donate half of their funds to the 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse's legal defense fund. So they're raising, they, they have um, decided that they're going to raise funds to contribute to the legal defense of, by all unbiased assumptions, a domestic terrorist. Yep, and it's, oh, I don't know. Part of me wants to be careful of my words because I really don't want to suffer the wrath of administration, but it's really interesting how, you know, ASU allows them to, like you said, make fun or, don't, or fundraise for a domestic terrorist, yet ICE can be on campus um, whenever they want and, you know, Everyone has to have a meal plan in their first year, yet, you know, the people who supply the food are Mark, you know, profits off prison labor. So I just think that's really interesting, you know, what the university allows and what they don't allow. Also I, threatening to, also, sorry, also threatening yeah. to suspend students if they go to a Black Lives Matter protest is truly, truly disgusting. Um, all for health reasons, which is BS. Um, I'm looking at the college Republicans United Twitter right now, um, where Ethan brought up that they're donating all funds to Kyle Rittenhouse's legal defense fund. And to mention that he might get like automatically just get life in prison, which he should for what he did. Um, I remember hearing that, but someone replied, I just like, I saw this and someone said, Kyle's record is now much worse than theirs combined. And they said, and college Republicans said, Self-defense against a pedophile and two felons. I just, you just have no words sometimes. I mean, I just, I don't know. Like, I, I just really have like no words now. And then they're like, why are you, like, why are you simping for pedophilia? Like. Ah, uh, yes. Um, no, good and normal things that good and normal clubs say at universities. By the way, for those of you who can't tell, I'm being very sarcastic. That is incredibly not good. Um, and also, all you need to know about College Republicans United, the context in which they operate, which I really want to note, is not the ASU College Republicans. And they go to great lengths to make that very clear. Um, mm -hmm. I, separate group. But CRU um, got a, uh, had an expose written on them about a year ago. Um, like just before we all came to college at ASU, um, it was written, they did, the state press and the Phoenix New Times did one right about the same time, just exposing that they were full of neo-Nazis. So people who would unironically share, um, neo-Nazi and white supremacist rhetoric in their group chats. And if they want to sue me for defamation, um, do it um, because what I am saying was published in to, uh, in the state press and the Phoenix New Times. So sue them, not me. Um, and and also they would also they also made fun of the death of um, woman who was murdered at Charlottesville. Heather Hare. Oh. Yeah. That's awful. And let me just specify really quick. Did I say College Republicans United? I did not know there was two groups. Yes, you did. You made okay. that clear. Yeah. 
College Republicans United is not ASU College Republicans. Mm -hmm. And just to make that clear to the listeners at home. Yes. And uh, I think I said like what I had to say about the Kenosha topic. We had a pretty good conversation about it. And um, maybe for next week, um, we talked about this in my journalism class. It's not like awfully related, but um, the Cronkite school, like Dean that was supposed to come here, Sonia uh, Fort Duhay, um, she was fired over the summer um, for her racist actions at Loyola in New Orleans. And it, it just dawned me on the fact like that my journalism teacher brought up why ASU in itself did like hired her in the first place and that they didn't vet her. Because if we found all of this stuff through one tweet on Twitter that collapsed into multiple tweets, why did, how did ASU not find any of these complaints? And that's probably going to be a story for next week. Yeah. yeah. We talked a lot about it when it happened. Uh, John, I know you weren't present that week. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, big mess. The fact that the state press and the call, the newspaper are down at Loyola, which whose name I, I can't remember the name of it, but the fact that two student newspapers did a better job vetting Duhay uh, then ASU is a big problem and one that is w- worth discussing in more detail um, if they tell us anything, which they won't. Mm-hmm. They won't tell yeah. us anything. I'm just going to no, come out won't. and say it. <laughs> yeah, they won't. Um, and um, also, I just wanted to bring up real quick too, this uh, chapter is still gets has pe- speakers and people coming in to talk to them. From our local, from our local G- GOP, so the Maricopa County um, Sheriff candidate um, Sheridan is Jerry Sheridan, who is the uh, GOP candidate for Maricopa County Sheriff, is going in to speak on August thirty first. So, I mean, essentially, this is what they're doing quite often, and this is how this organization acts. And they're still allowed. They're they're still bringing in these people. They're still they're like accepting to go speak to this club. Ah, uh, not good. Uh, I'm going to come out and say that. And yeah. So yeah, I, I think I, I think I speaking for myself here, uh, College Republicans United, very bad, does a lot of racist stuff. I agree. Yeah, I don't know why we just let a bunch of it's like, I don't know why we just openly let these people still have sponsorship by the university. It's like, Sure, I agree. You can't punish them for just being hateful little individuals. You can't. I'm against thought crimes, but you sure don't have to give them university stamp of approval and sponsorship and access to USG funds. Too that we have clubs at ASU that can't get funding for doing like community service and you know trying to help and improve the world. And these people are getting funding is a little bit concerning. And I mean, by a little bit, I mean a lot of it, obviously. And, you know, it's about where you put your money. And sometimes ASU doesn't do a great job with that. As ASU students, it's our job in a way to call ASU out on that. Yeah, I should note, that's all managed by the undergraduate student government. In this case, uh, USG Tempe. Um, I don't know if you wish, if, uh, 
CRU specifically has received funding, but them being an official organization makes them eligible for yeah. doing so. And um, I know we've definitely, yeah, commu some community service organizations have a rough time getting funds. Um, I even heard of a case. We were there was a plan a couple of years ago to bring Angela Davis onto campus, and they said no. <laughs> wow. I think I'm. I think that after those those chats were revealed, that they can't receive USG funding anymore, but they can still hold events on campus, and so they're they're essentially in the gray zone between a officially licensed club and an unofficially licensed club, but they can still participate in um, in close. They can still co-sponsor with other student organizations. They can still and they can still hold meetings on campus and and invite and do events on campus. Oh, yikes. Um, there's a lot to be said about that, but because of uh, time constraints, I think we're going to have to Sorry. move on because, yeah, that, we'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about CRU more as we get into, as things start happening on campus virtually. I am certain we will. Um, so anyways, um, I got a story, crazy enough, also about the police but we're talking about somewhere else. So I'm taking my segment's focus today to a series of events that recently took place in Portsmouth, Virginia. If you're like me until recently, I never heard of Portsmouth, never in my life. The first time I'd ever even heard of this town, of like 95,000 people, by the way, is last week. When I saw news that Louise Lucas, the president pro tempore of the Virginia State Senate, local NAACP leaders, and local public defenders were all charged with felony charges of conspiracy to injure a monument. Okay, some background. Um, so in June, protesters in Portsmouth beheaded Confederate statues and even tore one down, leaving a protester critically injured. It's worth noting. Lucas was long gone by the time the property damage started. Then, last week, on the 17th of August, the Portsmouth police issued arrest warrants for Lucas and the local activists, according to 13 News Now in Norfolk, Virginia. Very quickly, this started to look quite suspect to some observers. This happened immediately before the Virginia Senate was supposed to meet in a special session on police reform. The local prosecutor, Stephanie Morales, was actually bypassed in this decision because she was named as an eyewitness by the police. And in Virginia, their so-called magistrate system gives prosecutors less discretion with cases as they don't even get to the prosecutor's office until after arraignment on the charges. And really fun fact here, police even have the power to prosecute misdemeanors in the state of Virginia. These aren't misdemeanors, though. As for Morales, by the way, um, she's been called a pro progressive prosecutor by many observers and has successfully prosecuted a Portsmouth police officer in 2018 for the killing of an unarmed 18-year-old black teenager, according to the Huffington Post. Just when you think the story's over, it isn't. I'll read this from Alex Perrine in The New Republic, where most of the story was actually sourced from. Quote, this week, a white Portsmouth resident brought charges against Lucas's daughter, the city's vice mayor, Lisa Lucas Burke, for the apparent crime of demanding that Port Portsmouth, 
can't pronounce the town's name too well. Portsmouth's police chief resigned. Yes, that happened. A magistrate judge signed off on the complaint, which alleges Lucas Burke had violated the city charter rule against non-interference in appointments or removals. If she's found guilty, she'll have to resign from the city council. Also, I previously mentioned like two seconds ago, sourcing this from a New Republic article, I highly recommend reading called, The Police Are Pretty Sure They're Going to Get Away With It. Perrine's whole argument there is police are being political actors here by striking against their critics in power like Lucas, Lucas Burke, and Morales. Anyways, with that story said, I turn this over to the panel. Any thoughts about this situation? Um, it's, I think it's, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble coming up with words. Um, it's truly astounding to see as soon as people, you know, as soon as police why sorry my my siri on my computer keeps turning on i don't know why um you know once they put on that badge and put on that uniform how much they feel entitled to you know do all of these things that you know i had no idea the police you know were even involved with like you know they're in every corner of every community apparently fixing every issue um but you know i didn't know that you know I thought, you know, protect and serve. I didn't know they were, you know, trying to do all this crazy stuff and, uh, you know, in Virginia trying to, or, I mean, I'm kind of being sarcastic, but um, yeah, it's just like, the, the audacity is truly astounding. As Gideon said, go back to the end of season one and you'll hear our thoughts on the police pretty loud um but yeah this just shows we still need police reform and things maybe they change a little bit but things still need to change things still need to get better and like all hundred saying the police don't need to stick their nose in every single area of everything just because they have a badge just because you have power doesn't mean you need to abuse it when you look at a lot of great leaders they were good at delegating what made them such good leaders and the police seem to have a problem with that i agree with Haley. yeah you couldn't have said it better yeah well and it just goes to sh uh, it reflects this seeming um worryingly common trend in this in the states from pretty much every city to city that the police and the union, especially the unions in these uh, states, in, well, in these cities, see themselves as separate and in, in a consistently an adversarial relationship with both their with their city councils, with their um, with any form of government or or really any organized opposition to what they're doing. It just look no further than what the NYPD unions post on a daily basis on their social media accounts you know they're supposed to be serving their community and serving at the behest of the elected elected portion of the government and they seem to think that 
no, it's the other way around that they are the ones who get to decide everything and are in charge. Yeah, um, when I was saying earlier that law enforcement country, law enforcement culture in this country is fundamentally broken, I'm not kidding. It is unbelievably screwed up. And this story here, where you have essentially what some people even went as far as calling a straight up coup against the local government here, like like going after Lucas Burke. Um, and odds are they're probably going to win this. Like, and I sure hope they don't. What the Portsmouth police are doing here is pretty much a textbook example of abusing your power. But it seems, I'm pretty sure I said this when we were talking about a lot of the aftermath of the George Floyd shooting. Like, we've given police in this country a blank check. We've handed them a blank check. And you don't hand people blank checks. You don't do that. You don't hand people with guns blank checks, especially. I mean, it's sad. It's sad that we literally today, we have two small rural towns. We have Ethan mentioning the NYPD. Pick anywhere in America and you're going to find a police system that's pretty screwed up, needs reform, needs change. That's sad. It's not something we should be proud of as American citizens. The fact that you could literally throw a dart at a map and be like, hey, is there police people? Are they okay? The answer is 90% of the time, probably 99% of the time. And I know that's a big assumption. We don't use numbers all the time, but you know, 99% of the time, the police aren't great. That's a problem. That should be alarming to people. That should be, just be something where we sit back and we're like, oh, it's okay. No, it's a problem, a major problem. Yeah, and I, I, sorry, I just want to say one, line, one at least one more thing. Um, of course, in the aftermath of, uh, just to tie it back with the Kenosha, because both, both touch on different aspects of things. And we're not even done touching the aspects of the, even Kenosha um, on the panel tonight, but I, which you'll find out later. Um, but just the, yeah, the incredible, insane power we've handed and the sort of like the audacity that many police departments think they have. And like Haley was saying, you can throw a dart on the map and, and basically find examples like this anywhere. Even here at home, look no further than our Phoenix PD, where I currently live, and at their union, um, which the Phoenix Law Enforcement Association is, uh, their, their social media is not great. Um, it's just a lot a lot of the time it's them railing against the elected leaders especially the more progressive members of the council like uh, carlos garcia and oh yeah some of the nastiest stuff they've said in recent history has been against garcia or moreover things that have been said on their account by people that support them which they kind of just let happen um yeah it's a big problem and yeah, j j yeah. Oh yeah. I just I wanted to say you know, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I'm triggering my Siri. Um 
when police start to believe that they're a minority group, you know, back the blue, support the blue, you know, when they start to believe that, you know, that they're like so all of a sudden, you know, being, uh, they're all of a sudden, uh, you know, being attacked and that they're at risk of, you know, being destroyed and, you know, all the police are going to go away and we're going to live in this lawless society. It, it truly says a lot. Like, you know, blue is blue lives are not a thing and they never will be. Um, but, you know, they'll fight till the end of the day, protecting their blue lives and their blue brothers and sisters. Don't forget, we have female police officers, too. I said that sarcastically. Well, and it just, I don't want to, I don't want to drag anymore, but it just, it essentially sets up this in, in almost impossible to surmount roadblock between mending any sort of relations between these police forces and their, the communities they're supposed to be serving if the police forces essentially, again, see themselves as a persecuted minority that is holding back the descent of the of their of their respective cities into lawless anarchy that's the way they seem to see it and also that's i mean that ideology i'll call it of sorts also is reinforced by the way in which they arm themselves and the way in which they present themselves aesthetically they're especially in cities yeah and the insane amount of deference like I got the blank check um, and like even a local newspaper out there, the Virgi which is also cited in uh, Perrine's article. Um, so the local newspaper out there in the North, it's Portsmouth is a suburb of Norfolk, I should know. Um, the Virginian pilot um, was talking about how elected officials, activists and historians have identified a pretty much a clear pattern in which Portsmouth, which is majority black, I should note, um, essentially the population pushes the government to repair strained police relations, spend more tax dollars on children, and pass countless other measures to make Portsmouth more equitable, which is a direct quote uh, from the Ar uh, Virginia Pilot article. And then all those representatives get hounded out. They actually, their previous police chief, um, got hounded out um, after cons unspecified concerns with the leadership of the department. They hounded out a councilman for a federal forgery investigation after the sheriff um, went after him. And they even got rid of the mayor after a low-speed car chase over an ins expired inspection sticker. Like, just a systematic pattern of the local police thinking they that they can get rid of whoever they don't like. And you see them trying to do that with Lucas, with Lucas, um, who was supposed to go back to Richmond for a special session on police reform. By the way, just about every state has a law against it, but Virginia has an exemption for felonies. That's why she was able, that's why she was still forced to answer for it. Um, and it's only during session. It's to avoid stuff like the police hammering state representatives they don't like. And yeah, just 
incredibly not. Our, our relationship with law enforcement in this country is bad. Um, and I'm going to, I think in what is probably going to be the hottest take I've shared on this show, but is very true and everyone know, everyone who knows anything knows it, is that the police are actually doing a great job at what they want to do. <laughs> They're yeah. doing a wonderful job at what they want to do. Yeah. Brilliant. Like if they're, what, what they're aiming, what police departments are aiming to do, they're doing a great job. And I think anyone who has a problem with that statement needs to sit with that. Yeah. State sanctioned violence has never been more, never been, you know, never been more accomplished than now, truly. Yep. Well, anyways, um, enough about that story. Um, thank you all. Um, gotta move on though. Alejandro, you have a you have a series of stories for us. Actually, wait. Oh, Ethan. Ah, I screwed up. Thank it's good. you. I'll, I'll go ahead. So, um, I have another for a foreign policy story for you all tonight um, and one on a one on a region of the world which I haven't covered before for um, for this show so I'm doing um, so I'll just jump right into it so want to discuss something that may have slipped under a lot of people's radars this week with you know all the stuff that's happening domestically I know it's it's hard to keep track of all the things that are happening outside of this outside of the United States so I think we can all agree these are really incredibly difficult times worldwide. The global economy is in retreat, and every nation is doing its best to both combat a deadly virus and provide for their respective populations. And for the many people, many nations and peoples of Africa who, have, who already face hardship in good times, this is especially true for them now. Take Sudan, a nation which is unique for its level of economic and political deprivation. The nation only recently deposed a year ago the brutal dictatorship of Omar al-Bashir, a military general who took power in a coup in 1989. Bashir presided over a mass suppression of political freedoms, endemic corruption, a brutal civil war, a genocide in the region of Darfur. The second Sudanese civil war, which results in the fracturing of Sudan into two, saw the deaths of two million, the displacement of four million, and the deaths of 400,000 civilians and the brutal repression of the post-war insurgency in Darfur. Presently, the Sudanese government is a joint governing alliance between the military leadership that ousted Bashir and civilian leaders headed by a civilian prime minister. This delicate balance in Sudan is being threatened by both rising inflation, which reached 130% in, the, in just one month in June, and the fact that 10 million Sudanese are facing food shortages. And as well, in just the last few days, dozens have been killed in record flooding, which has also caused massive damage to the country's infrastructure. And so in the middle of this very fra fractured and played situation for Sudan, the United States is putting pressure on Sudan to pay $330 million of compensation to U.S. victims of embassy bombing attacks in Tanzania and Kenya. These terrorist attacks were launched by Al-Qaeda in 1998, which have received sanctuary and assistance from Bashir's dictatorship from 1991 to 1996. Now, this is really just a problematic situation for them, and I'll go through a few of the reasons why. First, Sudan desperately needs assistance and access to foreign markets. And because they've been listed on the United States state sponsors of terrorism list since the 1990s, they have been completely unable to really access the global markets and their country has remained incredibly isolated. 
Second, the, the government that the dictatorship that aided Al Qaeda in doing these bombing attacks against US embassies no longer exists. They were over, he, Bashir was overthrown and the actions of the current government, actually they imprisoned him and they delivered him to the International Criminal Court for charges of genocide. So they have done as much of a part as they can in, in bringing this man to justice and bringing his government to justice. And also this compensation does not only goes to American victims, which only constituted about 5% of the overall victims of the embassy bombings, while it gives absolutely nothing to any of the Kenyan or Tanzanian civilians who also who constituted 95% of the uh, civilian deaths and casualties. And I mean, so the US is just, for some reason is using of all the times, this time, while so many countries are suffering, especially Sudan, to demand an ailing African nation provide hundreds of millions of dollars to us, the ostensibly the wealthiest country on the planet. And that's pretty much to just don't know why we're doing this. It's the, the I mean, it, I mean, United States, I mean, it's obviously no stranger to exploit exploitative practices, but this is truly like one to remember because you know like you said like we're in the middle of a global pandemic and to ask for the 330 million dollars um i mean it's it's i mean i don't know what what they're expecting like you can only it's if this were if i mean not saying that this is right if we weren't a pandemic but um to financially strain a country to basically, um, you know, get, you know, be like, oh, like, get them, we'll be, you'll be in our good graces. Um, and who's to say, like, if they were to um, pay that $330 million, that things would actually improve in relations between Sudan and United States? There's no knowing. So it just, the whole thing just feels really exploitative. Especially just considering, so if you just compare that money, to, so Sudan's economy only constitutes a total GDP of $40 billion a year, and their government spending is only about 9% of that. So the U.S. is essentially asking Sudan to pay 15% of their, uh, uh, equivalent to 15% of their pu- overall yearly public spending for this. While for the United States, I mean, if, if we really thought that these American victims needed this compensation, the United States could have easily at any point have provided the $330 million, especially once I understand that before when Bashir was still in power, the United States didn't want to take Sudan off of the list. But now that Bashir is gone and that the civilian government is trying to make these movements, it also just seems like this would be at a time when the the, the civilian government is only existing at sort of the, the um, goodwill of the military that decided to overthrow Bashir to, in a sense, humiliate them in this way seems to just not be a smart strategic move to, because this would be very humiliating for the civilian government to have to do this. Yeah, and also it just, the entire decision by our federal government to tell the Sudanese government uh, kick rocks until you give us $300 million. Um, I can tell you, there's a lot of things it reminds me of, and none of those things are good. So, yeah, 
honestly, come on. Can, can we all show each other a little grace in this time? Bashir's government is gone. Bashir is being handed over to the International Criminal Court. Like, he is, like, oh, by the way, any of you who know anything about uh, former African dictatorship, any African dictatorship, any of them, present and past, it is very rare for the next guy to hand over the previous guy over. Most of the time, they just let him flee and call, let bygones be bygones. But they're actually handing them over to international justice. So I feel like uh, America can call it a draw. And if we so desperately need the money from Sudan, which we don't, we really don't, it's incredibly exploitive what we're doing. Um, if we do, we can talk about it later. But we shouldn't have to. It's it, it just exploitive. We're the wealthiest nation that's ever existed on Earth. Why are we bullying this poor third world country that's trying to make something of itself right now? Yeah, and especially considering that the surrounding nations also would very much so benefit from a stabilized Sudan. I mean, considering the amount of militant groups that have, that have operated in the border regions, just, just simply thinking for, for any number of countries to have a stabilized Sudan that actually has access to global markets and is actually sort of like escapes this sort of isolation they've been in for 30 years would very much so benefit from that. And that's pretty much my story. Just again, I like to cover sort of things that are either don't, aren't receiving a ton of coverage or to give unique insights into them. We appreciate it because honestly, oh, sorry. Oh, um, sorry. Don't continue. Well, we do appreciate it because honestly, I'm not as in tune to international news as I should. And I genuinely do learn a lot from your uh, articles and your segments. Thanks, Alejandro. Yes. I was going to say Alejandro stole the words out of my mouth. So. Oh, and uh, I'll hand off to Alejandro for his story. All right. So today I'm going to be doing uh, basically uh, media criticism um, as I've done before. So I'm just going to get right into it. If you go to any new site right now, you will most likely be met with a paywall and a message at the bottom of the screen telling you how many free articles you have left to use. However, paywalls make news inaccessible to many. The current function of a paywall is to help bring money to a publication so they can pay their journalists and other staff. And of course, journalists deserve to get paid. There's no way around that. And I believe hopefully that journalists should get paid. However, what if we were able to live in a world where all news is free, wherever you want to go to find the latest news, it's available to you at no cost. What if we could live in a world where this model of news was sustainable to, so that journalists could also make a living, you know, a win-win? Both of these questions and more came to mind yesterday in my JMC 301 class, Intermediate Reporting and Writing. Um, we were doing our view of uh, JMC 201, uh, which is the class you take previously to 301. Um, and basically it was like a list of topics and our professor was asking us, you know, what we believed was important or the most important should be on the top of that list. And I said that I felt that accessibility of news was the most important. In 2020, we all live dynamic lives and a 999 subscription to the local newspaper is not always a priority. You know, always good to support local news, but sometimes some things are just more important. 
And, but how can we make this local news better? You know, we're saying it's, I'm saying it's um, important to support, but how can we make it better? You know, the, there's an ongoing joke on journalist Twitter about how people will talk about a major news event and say, why is nobody talking about this? You know, often in all caps. And the usual response is your local news uh, organizations have been covering it. You should just Google. Um, however, you know, it's not really as simple as that. Uh, one ex uh, great criticism of this I found was from Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communications student, Kiara Linnae. Um, she had a tweet about it that really hit home. Um, the tweet is as reads, quote, those, why is nobody talking about memes that journalists are sharing are rubbing me the wrong way? Like, yeah, audiences need to do research, but have you considered you aren't doing your job well enough if mass amounts of people feel like they don't have access to info, end quote. Linnae's comments couldn't have said it better. What are journalists doing to make sure that their audiences have access to the news they're reporting? This is especially true of local media. Thinking about accessibility and how we can best deliver the news and how it reaches the most people, the word free comes back to mind. Why is it fair that some people in Phoenix might be able to read the Arizona Republic and others aren't? I don't think it's a radical idea to have news be free so everyone can access it. Every story you produce has an impact on someone. It doesn't matter if it's in politics section or in food and wine. News sits with us, forcing us to think critically. We don't think passively about the people or things in our news stories. We grow attached, we go on Instagram and follow prominent figures from the story we just read, making sure that the story doesn't die as soon as we leave the page. In a world where all news is free, we must also tell it like it is. An article from the Associated Press is a clear example of the news skirting around the facts. The article is titled, Teen Accused of Killing Two Thrusts into the Debate Over Protest by Stephen Groves and Scott Bauer. A paragraph in the article reads, quote, to some, Rittenhouse is a domestic terrorist whose very presence with a rifle incited the protesters, but to others who have become frustrated with demonstrations and unrest across the country, he's a hero who took up arms to protect people who are left unprotected, end quote. Allowing this type of perspective to even be written is disgusting. In journalism, we're taught to present both sides of the conflict and let readers what they think. But this is an ancient way of thinking, and it is extremely harmful especially to black communities as well as other people of color. Kyle Rittenhouse killed two people and wounded one. He literally killed someone, and the two men who wrote this article, Stephen Groves and Scott Bauer, are trying to offer two sides to the situation. I call bull. There are entirely too many instances of news organizations, sorry, there are entirely too many instances of news organizations portraying white people who have committed acts of domestic terrorism with childlike protectiveness and an inability to say what they did was horribly wrong. In instance of people being honest in news, however, comes from the Sacramento Bee. The title of the article is, Police Reforms Face Defeat as California Democrats Block George Floyd-Inspired Bills by the Sacramento Bee Editorial Board. The most biting part of the article comes in the lead, which says, quote, so much for the moist eyes and feigned empathy from some California Democrats, or sorry, and feigned empathy some California Democrats showcased during the Black Lives Matter marches that followed the police killing of George Floyd. Despite performative emoting by powerful members of California's ruling party, a state, a state of necessary police reform, or sorry, a slate of necessary police reforms may be headed for full or partial defeat in the California state legislature. So many news outlets are quick to criticize Republicans, and rightfully, but don't have the same energy when the Democratic Party masks their politics of performative actions and fails to protect the people who they claim to represent. Among the slew of reforms, the editorial board explains how the Deadly Force Accountability Act, quote, would allow local law enforcement leaders and district attorneys to request that the California State Attorney General investigate police shooting, end quote. However, the editorial board notes that the California Attorney General 
Xavier Bercera, a Democrat, opposes the reform. Being honest, brutally honest, is key to making news good and worthy people to read. Who are we writing for if we're not going to be honest? Humanizing a white person who killed protesters is not honest news, and that type of mindset only goes to empower the notion of objectivity, which was born from white supremacy. As journalists, it is our responsibility to hold people accountable, and our journalism can no longer operate looking down at the crowd, but making sure we're with them. So that's it. Wow. Alejandro, before I even start talking about the content of what you just said, before I get into that, because I do have thoughts, just wow. That was a powerful media criticism you just did there, and one that needed to be said. Um, Thank you. As for what you did say in specifics, um, you mentioned the attempted humanization of Rittenhouse. And, okay, I'm not going to use his name from here on out as a part of a, you know, it's not, yeah, don't want to give any, turn him into a martyr. Um, unfortunately, there are sections of this country who have turned him into a martyr. Um, case in point, a Mr. Tucker Carlson on Fox News broadcasting, like, uh, he, he basically said something along the lines of it's a, that, uh, of like a 17 or like, um, oh yeah, when you have chaos and disorder, this is like, this is what happens. A 17 year old feels like they got to reinstate it. It's like, excuse me. I know I've said that a lot this episode, but, um, I feel like a lot of the topics we've been talking about are just a whole bunch of excuse me moments. Because it's like, this is not order. I mean, it is a kind of order, white supremacy. Um, but I don't think that's what they want people to hear. Um, yeah, um, just the kind of nasty kind of lionization the far right has made of him. And the fact that it would even make it to... Carlson's one of the most popular cable news hosts in the country. Like, this isn't fact, some rando. He's, in fact, the most popular and most viewed nightly. He's the most watched television show in the entire country. No one watches, no one is watched more than Tucker Carlson each night. Which, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, so this is not like a, these are not just the people out on the absolute fringe anymore. These are like, this is normal discourse in American politics. And forgive me for my language, but to hell with it. Um, like, no, this is not acceptable. Not in, no. I wholeheartedly reject this nonsense. He, this shooter was categor categorically killed two people. And he is not a martyr. He is somebody who's going to face, who is going to face a judge and a jury. And we're going to find out how, guilty is and what sentence he deserves. That is what he is. End of story. Oh my goodness, I'm so mad at this. Ethan, please continue. Well, and even regardless of any defenses or things that can be brought up, it, it still is reflective of the fact that, that many of these people, before they even knew what had happened, 
even before they knew who he was, knew any of the justifications and knew any of the details surrounding the shooting, were already that night, um, the, the two, I think it was three nights ago, was already defending the unknown shooter. And so they had already decided, had already decided that this was right and justified. And so they've operated assuming that fact since before they knew any details. So it doesn't really, it, it really doesn't matter to them what happened in the video because they will just see it how they want to see it because they think that that was right, that what happened there was right. And I wanted to add that in fact, actually Tucker Carlson is not only currently the most watched cable news show. He is the most watched cable news show in ever in, in the history of the United States. He gets an, an average nightly viewing of 4.53 million people. So that's 4.53 million people at least every night who are tuning in to watch Tucker Carlson make excuses for this sort of stuff. What's free media versus what isn't free media? It's very interesting. We have CNN, we have Fox, we have television news, we have sports games that are sometimes put behind paywalls, sometimes not. We have sources that you can read for free. All you want and sources that you can't are put behind paywalls and it's strange to see what's free and what's not. And as Alejandro said, I understand that journalists need to be paid. I want to become a journalist. Obviously, I want to get paid. It's going to be a problem if I don't. I'm going to need to find a new career. But it is more important for people to be able to read the news and gather the truth and gather both sides of a story. Whatever the story might be, doesn't matter what area it is, like Alejandro said, food and wine, politics, crime, it really doesn't matter. The important thing is that people can read the truth and understand it and get it from sources that they can trust. We have so much news misinformation going all over the place, all over Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever, wherever you get your news from. So to not be able to rely on newspapers, things that were created so that people could understand what was happening when America was established. For us Americans not to be able to get the news is a problematic thing, and it's not a situation that we should be in. But again, as Alejandro said, it's a situation I understand why we're in it. It's, it's about getting paid money tends to be a problem for a lot of things. But the one thing I will say is, you know, find those news sources that don't put you behind a paywall. We talk about the state press a lot on this podcast or radio show. It, the state press isn't behind a paywall. Most college newspapers aren't behind paywalls. And most college reporters who are writing for their papers in college aren't getting paid. So you can find a lot of great news coverage from people that aren't getting paid and are just trying to tell stories because that's what they like to do. Yeah, um, we, I know we, we've hammered this home, point home on many on a lot in season one. Like, yeah, do please do support if you can pay for news. I do recommend doing so. Like, there's a lot of coverage that is unfortunately behind paywalls because yeah, journalists gotta eat. Um, and I do wish it was more accessible. And it's unfortunate that the way our media has developed in this country of la the large media conglomerates who have CEOs who make millions of dollars as their journalists make virtually nothing. And, and then they're like, listen, we're not making money, says Wall gets 
three million dollar bonus. Um, not an uncommon thing. Or we're not making money, uh, and, like that kind of thing. Or private equity is the worst. There's a great uh, anyone who has a Netflix subscription. Uh, Hassan Minhaj's Patriot Act uh, talked a lot about this in their final season, which I am still not happy about. Netflix, uh, bring it back already. Um, <laughs> but. In their final season of Patriot Act, Hassan Minhaj did an episode about like the local movie, which was really well done, like a comedian hero, but he did some really good journalism and so, so, um, citing a lot of journalism on just how private equity has wrecked journalism, which I think we did talk about that last season. Alejandro did a story on that. Yeah. Or it was national media, but it, it applies yeah, it applies down. Uh, yeah, Asan Minhaj's episode focused more on local media. Yeah. But yeah, recommend watching that. Um, really unfortunate. And yeah, uh, oof, yeah. Big mess uh, in media for two different reasons. One, like, fact is, and one of the reasons, Alejandro, I truly think like stuff like mm-hmm. Kyle Rittenhouse gets incredible, covered so incredibly badly. Um, is because you have a very, like, journalism is very white. Yes. Very, very disproportionately white. So they can easily, like, most journalists can easily empathize with someone like the shooter. Real easy. But find it harder to empathize with, say, the victims of police brutality who are predominantly not white. So, yeah, yeah, there's just a lot of different trends combining there with journalism being white. People living in really, like, most of this country lives in pretty segregated communities, not to, like, the extent of, like, Milwaukee, but definitely people living, the vast majority of Americans live in communities predominantly filled with people that look like them. Uh, And so, yeah, when you have that and journalists in this country being so disproportionately white and yeah you're just not you're not going to get people who even understand the communities like like black communities latino community asian communities in this country and that is deeply unfortunate like and there's a lot to be said on and uh, on on how a lot of distrust of the media is actually rightfully earned by their stuff like trying to justify well and i guess they'll say we're not trying to justify it we're just merely parroting a perspective but it's like some perspectives are just extremely harmful and should never right it's like it's just yeah i'm not even going to try to use an example for this one because it's i'm sure you get the idea if i tried to say something Mm -hmm. that was an absolute third rail which i'm not even going to say any because i'm not I don't even want to play that game here. Like, I would get nailed for that. Guaranteed. But no one's going to get nailed for that. That's a normal thing to say. Yes, some some people might be making the shooter into a martyr, which he is not. Um, and anyone who wants to do that and then goes and says law and order is basically just saying, I like white supremacy. And they should probably just come out and say it. So... Anyways, I've definitely been a lot angrier than I am on this show normally, but 
I want to make it clear. It's because I care about this. And yes, this is a thing. This isn't like an abstract thing that like happens to other people and such. This is a thing that could very well happen to me. So yeah, um, just want to be make that clear. <sighs> yes, I've said enough. We appreciate your perspective as always. Um, and with that, we'll go to sports with Haley. So, the opening words of the document that governs America are we the people. The document that America was founded on starts with all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's times when real life, and you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, and sports crossover. Now, although it might be rare, this week has been a very monumental time for both America and the world of American sports. Usually, sports are used as a form of entertainment or a getaway. But this week, athletes took to social media and the world stage to show what they truly stand for. Today, August 28th, the MLB decided to honor Jackie Robinson. Because on April 15th, it wasn't an option. This fight against racism and injustice has been going on for years. As Jackie Robinson once said, there's not an American in this country free until every one of us is free. And that's exactly what athletes in today's world are fighting for. That's what people in today's world are fighting for. On Saturday, August 23rd, at around 5.15 p.m., Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times. In a reaction to him being shot on Wednesday, the 26th, the Milwaukee Bucks chose to walk out of their playoff game against the Orlando Magic. As a reporter, I'm not supposed to share my opinions. I'm supposed to seek the truth and report it. But as a human being, I applaud the Bucks. And I applaud all the other athletic teams around the world and around the United States that have taken a stand. Following the Bucks protest, the rest of the teams in the NBA refused to play their games that night. Since then, no games have been played in the NBA. On Wednesday night, and Thursday morning, kind of, the League and the Players Association agreed to resume the games. But we'll get to the terms in a bit. The WNBA quickly followed the NBA's lead and took a stand against racism. The Washington Mystics players chose to wear t-shirts that together spelt Jacob Blake, and on each shirt it individually had seven red splotches on it to represent the seven shots. If you haven't seen a picture of it, I'd highly recommend going to Google it. It's a very powerful picture. Well, things weren't well received around other leagues, and the WNBA commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, stood with her players and said, I just want to say how proud I am of all of you, what you've displayed over the course of a very difficult season, what you've displayed tonight. When I was writing this article, it wasn't a, well, we weren't sure when the WA was going to resume play, but as I Googled and Googled through the show, Apparently, they're resuming play tonight, again, the 28th, Friday, and that's what ESPN says. Continuing on to Wednesday night, many MLB players chose to set out their games, and there were games that were fully canceled, but it was kind of up to the team. It was never a league decision. On Thursday night, all the games were canceled, and again, today, August 28th, most of the games resumed with the honoring of Jackie Robinson. Although most teams chose actually not to play, they just kind of stood there, honored Jackie Robinson at 42 seconds of silence, put like a big 42 shirt over the field and then just kind of left and returned to the clubhouse. The MLS did the same thing as the leagues before it 
and six out of the seven games that were planned for Wednesday night were canceled. The one game that wasn't canceled was already happening, and they just couldn't, like, cancel it in time. On Thursday morning, nine teams in the NFL, including the local team, the Cardinals, chose not to have practices. Many players on the teams who did not choose to practice took to social media to voice their thoughts or made a choice to sit out of practice if their team was practicing. The Detroit Lions led the charge in the NFL and stood outside for their whole training answering any questions the media had for them. The NHL also canceled all their games on Thursday and Friday night, and the league held a press conference with five African-American players representing what they thought and giving their stance. However, over the weekend, the NHL playoffs will resume. Circling back to the NBA, on Wednesday night, the league and the players had a long chat about resuming the season, where LeBron James and Kawhi Leonard of the Lakers and Clippers respectively said that they wanted to cancel the season. After reaching out to former President Obama, the Players Association reversed their decision and reached a conclusion with the NBA. In exchange for the playoffs to continue on Saturday, all NBA arenas will be used as polling places in the upcoming election, safely, of course. It's rare that something unifies the sports world and the real world, but when it's something as important as injustice, it demands attention from everyone, of every statue. To close what I and athletes around the world seem to think, I'll leave you with a part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, as today's the day he delivered this speech 57 years ago. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of, of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. Panel, I want to open it up to you guys to say whatever you want, because there's a lot going on in sports right now. So I'm curious, what do you guys think? What are your opinions? Um, I can just offer a few brief, brief ones. Um, first is that I think it's it was a, it was a good thing that what they decided to do. I do wish that it had stayed um, that they actually did the course had stayed, and that they had um, continued to do the strike. Um, now, to look at sort of this idea of um, people not liking the politics in sports or this idea of politics in sports, I think it also is closely linked to this idea in general that people think of, as you said, that sports are an escape, that not liking um, their forms of entertainment to have political elements in them. But I would say that generally most things, even if you don't necessarily realize it, are political in some ways. It's just because... So for instance, even like it, it's generally though, I think here's the difference when people say they don't like that sports are now getting political. I think it's instead that the sports are making them uncomfortable that for instance, something like having all of having everyone in the stadium stand for the national anthem, having all the players with their hats, having jet flyovers, things like that. Those are all political. They all have messages to them. And, but because it didn't make people uncomfortable, they didn't think it was political. I think you're 100% right, Ethan. I think sports are deeply rooted in politics, actually. It's just when people become uncomfortable. We have examples going way back in sports and, you know, Colin Kaepernick taking the knee, whatever. The second people get uncomfortable, it becomes a problem in sports and people start freaking out. Yeah. And it's very closely reflected for anyone. I, 
and when it knows sort of how people react when um when like think when video games or movies that are generally considered a general entertainment medium gets the political element that they think then it also provokes a very similar reaction as to what is seen and um what's seen and when people react like this way to what happened what happened with the nba a few nights ago i just uh just to sorry i didn't um really quick um shout out the women of the WNBA because I've um, personally gotten really invested into the league in the past couple months and they, you know, they stood a lot, they stood to lose a lot more than the NBA players by not playing because the league doesn't generate as uh, much money and it's not as watched. Um, And it was really amazing to see, you know, the players on the Mystics, they were being uh, interviewed by Holly Rowan, Ariel Atkins on the Mystics, who's, pretty much kind of known for being shy and she doesn't really say much um, what she said basically that they you know they weren't going to shut up and dribble and that they were going to take a stand was really inspiring um, and uh, Nico Gumage who is president of the WMBPA the Players Association um, it was really great to see her you know support all of her players and you know being one with them and there was also a picture of them at IMG Academy the players who weren't on the courts, the whole entire league was unified in, you know, embracing each other um, in arm lock. And it was truly amazing because no, I mean, all a bunch of sports leagues, you know, had uh, not played, but the WNBA was the only league where all the players were actually truly unified and all together on the same page. Um, And I just want to shout out because I think the women are doing an amazing work, especially this season um, highlighting Say Her Name, um, just a campaign that, you know, highlights Black women who have been victims of police violence. So just wanted to say that. Yeah, shout out the WNBA. And they've been doing a lot, not just about what recently happened, but they've been standing up literally throughout the whole of this year with different, they love t-shirts. Not sure why, but the WNBA is big into social t-shirts. Um, but they've been standing up for pretty much anyone and everyone. So they definitely deserve more recognition than they're getting. Yeah, it's a, it's a real disservice. Um, the, I know there's a lot of jokes that are made about the WNBA and women's sports generally, uh, which, by the way, are horribly misogynist. I just want to make it clear. Um, and it's like, no, they're doing – First of all, they play the game really well. And two, they stand up for a lot of wonderful causes. They're like, of any pro sports league in the country, I can't think of one more invested in, in social change than the WNBA. And I applaud them. Also, um, to talk about uh, all the other leagues, it's been a very, especially with the NBA, it's been very a little chaotic that those couple that two-day period when like negotiations were ongoing was probably was extraordinarily chaotic there seemed to be a lot of like i understand it's hard to get that many people on the same page even though they're all in in the bubble but um yeah i was deeply confused about it (laughs) until like the end of yesterday because yeah there was just too much happening there yeah it was a confusing situation a lot of it had to do with 
various players having various opinions because the way the NBA works, you have a players association. Then you also have like representatives of each team. So it depends on like what all of them think mixed in with, obviously we can't have some teams being like, yeah, sure. We're going to play in the playoffs. And then other teams being like, yeah, no, we're not going to play in the playoffs. It has to be an inclusive decision. Fortunately, from what LeBron James was saying, Chris Paul, president, former president Obama seemed to help them make that decision more clear. So whatever he said, great, seemed to work for getting basketball back if that's what you wanted. Yeah, really interesting um, situation there. Also, um, the other leagues did, like baseball, I, I, I appreciate that they're doing that, like a <laughs> bit of a interesting situation too, but the honoring Jackie Robinson, the man who broke the color barrier. Like, definitely, I, I, I deeply appreciate that. Like, uh, uh. yeah, after just one thing, I know we're running high on time. Uh, or I guess one thing I, you know, not, not just the panel, but I challenge people to do is, you know, as sports, uh, as as sports continue to come back after this slight delay, um, I would urge people to watch more critically and to get more involved in these causes. These players are great because you know, as fun as it as fun as it is to watch LeBron on the Lakers or to watch the Diamondbacks, um, you know, you know these players are truly playing for something more than a championship. So that's just something I would encourage all people to do while they're watching again this weekend. Yeah, I think you're right. Look at the stories athletes have to tell us. Sports journalists, that's my favorite part of sports actually, is looking at the stories these athletes have to tell, not how good they do on or off the field. I don't care about whether a player goes three for three. I mean, it's fun. It's great. It's a good thing that they do. Or if they go over three, not such a great thing. But, you know, who they are as people is a lot more important than what they do on or off on not off what they do off is the important part what they do on a field or on a court or rink or whatever platform you're watching them play at or on yeah um really gotta know a lot of if any of you are familiar with Haley's work as a sports journalist a lot of it like her work is focused on that and really great stuff she has a twitter um smile underscore reports right yeah my Twitter is an interesting place, but it's okay. <laughs> she she's not active, but she posts whenever she writes a story. So I, I don't like Twitter, but that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Haley. It's been a chaotic week in sports, and you summed that up in a few minutes. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, if there are no other random stray thoughts left to share with the general public, I think it is time for us to end as we have gone extremely over what we normally do. I We're going to be better about that in the future. Wear a mask, please. Don't go to parties. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. Please I echo be. that sentiment. Yes, <laughs> please, please don't. don't yeah, uh, as we've repeatedly said, wear a mask. Don't, don't go to parties. Be careful in, with social gatherings. Um, 
Oh yeah. Also, if you're at ASU, COVID testing is free. Go to your health portal, which is accessible through my ASU. Do that. I'm getting. I'm literally getting tested on tomorrow, which is Saturday. So it's free. If you're at ASU, do it. It's a saliva test. They're not going to shove a swab up your nose. Uh, my mom had to take one of those, and she hated it so much. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And results come in, in 24 to 48 hours. Yep. So you'll know pretty fast. <laughs> um, and so will I. Hopefully I test negative. Um, so <laughs> crossing my fingers right now. Anyways, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you want to talk with us more, uh, follow the show's social media accounts at BReviewBlaze. BReviewBlaze, one word, all lowercase. Um, we'll keep you up to date about what's going on. You add us at any time. We will see it and you will get a response. We, we promise that much. Um, and yeah, uh, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Review. We'll be back next week with another episode. So until then, mask up, stay safe, and we'll... Be back with you soon. The music you hear is by www.purple-planet.com.